miss a show, no problem. Coming up on point and on the podcast, economists are changing their tune on rising inflation rates because what was once met with a shrug apparently can no longer be ignored. So we'll talk about what you need to know on how this affects your cost of living and how much more expensive it's about to get. We'll talk about an Israeli firm accused of selling spyware that was used to spy on the heads of state, prime ministers, journalists, and even two women linked to murdered journalist Jamal Khashoggi. What is spyware and why is this not regulated to prevent this? And allergy rates are spiking thanks to our constant hand sanitizing. What's a long-term threat to children if we keep everything and all of them germ-free? Let's get talking. Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of wealth and taste. I've been around for a long, long year. Stole many a man's soul and faith. This is On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Making sure that every woman across this country has access uh, to reliable reproductive uh, health and services is extremely important to us. Uh, and that is why we have continued uh, to work with partners across the country and to uh, impress strongly upon the government of New Brunswick how it needs to uh, keep up its obligations under the Canada Health Act. Uh, the fact that New Brunswick hasn't yet done that is exactly why we withheld millions of dollars in health transfers to New Brunswick because they have not lived up to their obligations. Oh, you know an election's coming when Justin Trudeau starts talking abortion. Alex Pearson with you on this Wednesday, July 28th. Hope you had a great day. Here we are midweek getting you through it and over the toughest side of things. And I uh, got some good news today, learning Toronto will no longer hold their daily COVID updates. I tell you, I could never see Dr. Davila and that ever-evolving scarf, co- scarf collection again. It would still not be long enough. So hopefully this is the beginning of these medical officers of health parking their newfound celebrity and, and getting back to what they should do, which is vaping and diet guidelines. But from here on out, they say that uh, they're only going to report cases that are in unvaccinated people. But I, for one, will not miss those daily, you know, the daily updates that should have stopped months ago. Months ago. Uh, Jagmeet Singh penning a letter to our new Governor General urging Mary Simon to deny the Prime Minister the election that he so desperately wants. And, you know, it's not unheard of for a head of state to say no. Requests of refusing an election has happened 51 times under the Westminster. I mean, he's right that we don't need an election, but there's just no way that Simon will refuse the guy who just appointed her his quest for a majority. So I would suggest to Mr. Singh, you know, spend less time making videos on TikTok and come up with some policy ideas that people can actually really get behind. Because Singh does have wind at his back. And I also agree with him. Yes, Parliament's been working. Just not for Justin Trudeau. Because he doesn't like not having total power. But as far as I'm concerned, as long as opposition's been able to hold him to account and keep him in check, it's working. And you know an election's close because abortion's back in the headlines. I mean, can we just, can we just not this time around, really? Like, just not? Is it asking too much that the prime minister campaign on actual policies 
and not our ovaries? I mean, I get it. History shows there's no better weapon for him to use in abortion rights, and that way he can wedge his conservative opponents. And for whatever reason, this contrived hysteria works like a charm, even though everyone knows abortion is not an issue in this country. No one is taking it away. So why do we, and why does the media, play along? And the topic came up during one of Trudeau's numerous campaign stops that he now does on a full-time basis, and it was in New Brunswick where a reporter asked Trudeau why his government's withholding health care funds from the province, and Trudeau used the opportunity to make sure all Canadian women know that with him, the feminist in charge, abortions are guaranteed. It was not the question. And his answer was in no way sincere. Because Trudeau went on this claim that his government's withholding millions in federal health spending from the province for not funding the procedure. Well, as soon as he said that, his office had to walk it back, telling reporters that it's actually not millions, it's actually $140,000. And New Brunswick is not refusing services. There are three hospitals in the province that provide this to women. So the argument is over one small clinic. But my, my point being, Trudeau used the moment to make it sound like uh, the conservative Premier Higgs has hijacked women's ability to get an abortion. And it's just not true. And this issue of funding for abortions in New Brunswick, it's been going on for years. So if, if he were at all sincere in his convictions, then he'd have taken action a long time ago. He'd have fixed it as he promised when he campaigned there in 2019 for that election. And guess what? He's done nothing. And so now he's using the issue as a political stunt to wedge his opponents. I mean, it is tired. And I find it insulting to women whose ovaries are being used for his political gain. And I don't know how this strategy is still successful in 2021. No woman is being denied the service in this country, period. So it is time this feminist leader stopped campaigning on this non-issue. But more so, it's time that people call him on this BS. And that he is doing so, I think, tells us that he's sweating. He's sweating over the polls, which show his support has softened. Aaron O'Toole has closed the gap. Jagmeet Singh is moving up with steady support. But it also suggests in polling that Canadians have put the issue of COVID in the rearview mirror. We're done with it. Don't want to talk about it. Get on with business. Which means, you know, the Prime Minister who probably thought he could run the campaign on, you know, the praise he believes he should get for his COVID performance isn't there because people have moved on. We got bigger issues pocketbook issues, things like cost of living, affordability, things like health care spending. So Trudeau will have to be able to sell himself as the right guy to lead the way through a recovery that's now threatened by news today from StatsCan about increased inflation, which has a lot of economists very surprised, and a report from Ottawa's financial watchdog who's warning that if the Trudeau government does not change course on spending, we're going to run deficits until 20. 70. 2070. I'll be long gone. You'll be long gone by then. But our kids will be stuck with a bill saying, what the blank were they thinking? 
and out of control spending and rising inflation, that doesn't make for a great you know, campaign conversation. So you can bet every tax dollar that Trudeau will play games on issues about abortion to further his crass political ambitions. And as far as I'm concerned, the only talk I want to hear about abortion is the only thing that needs aborting, and that is his government and their terrible policies. All right, welcome back to the show. You know, one headline might raise an eyebrow, but when headlines about rising inflation become a bit of a pattern, then it's time to worry. And, you know, inflation rates started making news in the spring, and it was pretty much met with a shrug. Analysts said, you know, there's no reason to worry yet. And that tune now apparently changing with news today from StatsCan that inflation rates have actually inched up over 3%. Now economists are warning we could see inflation hit 5% or more for as long as two years. Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor over at Sprott School of Business at the Carleton University, joining us. How do you see today's headline? I think this is, Alex, um, yet more confirmation that the argument put forward, the claim put forward by the Bank of Canada, by the Minister of Finance, that uh, the inflation is transitory. That's the big word coming out of Ottawa. Big fancy word meaning it's temporary. And what worries me, even though they're claiming that, and by the way, they're very smart people. I'm not trying to suggest they're not. Uh, But my fear is that each month that goes by with uh, these elevated inflation numbers, 3%, 3 3.5%, 4%, is that they become embedded in right. our heads, our heads, meaning all of us, 38 million of mm-hmm. us or 30 million of us. And, I mean, inflation ultimately is about psychological expectations. I mean, we've known that since Keynes. Keynes talked to 80 years ago. He said, well, what causes all this? And he finally said, well, animal spirits. And that was his cute, funny phrase for meaning us are in our heads. Mm-hmm. And and the point is that the 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 Bank of Canada governor and the Minister of Finance are saying, look, we've looked at the numbers, the supply chain numbers. It's a temporary situation caused by COVID. Uh, you know, the prices went up like lumber and stuff like that. But the the supply chains will come back in the balance, and it's all going to go away. And our happy days are here again, and everything's back to normal. The problem is, I've I've seen this movie before because yeah. I grew up in the seventies when I was in my twenties when I bought my first mm-hmm. house. And I remember Trudeau, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, and the governor of the Bank of Canada were saying, don't worry, everybody, we've got inflation under control. Trudeau even promised his famous phrase, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, we're going to wrestle inflation to the ground. And then, of course, it got higher and higher and higher, and then the interest rates started to go up. And, you know, some people listening may say, well, so what if we get a little bit of inflation? What's the big deal? My fear is not that I care about inflation as such. It's that... If inflation starts to crawl, creep up, and stay up there at 3 and 4%, interest rate increases are going to follow. I mean, this has been right. studied to death. Forests have been cut down to publish the PhD theses. There's no question that inflation and interest rates are correlated. That is inflation, and the central banks have said so. They say, you mm-hmm. know, if inflation gets out of hand, we're going to put up the interest rates. So what we're right. really talking about for your listeners is not inflation, it's how does this grab your attention, everybody? What if your mortgage, which is coming up, is at 2 or 2.5%, two and, yeah. and it comes up for renewal in a year or two, and you got to renew at 5%? How does that grab yeah. your attention? 
Yeah, and then you've lost all the savings that you made on the great 1% or 1.9 or whatever you locked into. I mean, part of the issue, Ian, is demand and supply. I mean, sure, there's huge demand. Everyone wants to go. I mean, I'm, I'm spending money on things that I'm like, I'll buy that. That looks fun. I don't yeah. need it. I'm just, I've got freedom. So I'm going out and I'll buy something. But that will slow down. And then you've got these supply chain issues, uh, things like lumber, retail goods, car parts are delayed. And those delays could go you know, much longer than expected. And so the supply doesn't meet the demand. And, and so that factors in too. Alex, you're right. And I don't dispute that at all. But I want to throw on one more wrinkle into the, and it comes back to the government and how government's decisions, which I criticize, are critical of, are, I think, helping make the situation worse. And, and I'm referring specifically to the last 18 months of all the income support right. programs. I'm not against them. Don't, let's be clear. I'm not against them. Of course, we should have uh, done everything we needed to do to help people that needed help. What I have been profoundly critical about of Mr. Trudeau's government is that they undermined a 70, destroyed, sabotaged a 75-year consensus that has existed in our country since unemployment insurance was introduced in, I think it was 1945, and there's been very strong support for it from the beginning until now the, of two fundamental features. Number one, We'll give you about 65% of your salary. We don't give you 200% or 300%. We give you 65% if you lose your job. And secondly, you got to keep looking for a job, and you can't turn one down if you're qualified for it. And they, with all the COVID, the, the CERB and all the alphabet soup of programs, they kicked out those two requirements. They said, no, we're going to give you $2,000 no matter what you're making, regardless. And secondly, mm-hmm. no, you don't, have to, you don't have to be looking for a job, and you can turn down jobs. And, and so people can say, well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with being sensitive? And, and the answer is, well, the people aren't returning to work. Some people aren't, and restaurants aren't. They're having an awful time. And so mm-hmm. some people, some critics have said to me, well, what's wrong? They're, they're paying. That means they're not paying enough. Okay. And there are, there's evidence that restaurants like McDonald's are starting to increase the wages. But that's called inflation, wage mm-hmm. inflation. And so I'm arguing that that's going to embed inflation in our heads collectively because the the because of these policies that are in essentially encouraging people who don't like their job for whatever reason to stay home and that's forcing the employers to increase their wages which is going to feed back in to the the economy and those companies are then going to have to increase their prices to cover the increased wages and so what I'm right. suggesting is that inflation is going to become embedded not so much through the, the mess, the imbalance in the supply chain. It's going to come about through the policy that encouraged, that said you don't have to be looking for a job and yeah. has encouraged people to not take jobs they don't like. And that's going to force wages up. And that, I think, inflation is going to occur. The, the vehicle, uh, the transmission belt is going to be through the requirement of unemployment, the non-requirement of these income support programs to not return to work, which is going to force companies to raise their wages, and that's going to push and induce and put inflation into the system. Just quickly, let me touch upon this, though, because on the same day that we get this from StatsCan, Parliamentary's budget officer, the financial watchdog in Ottawa, is warning that if the Trudeau government doesn't change course on their huge spending, massive federal projects, that we're going to be running deficits till 2070. And it's not just yeah. not sustainable, but Yves Giroux says no one's concerned. I, I, it, it, it terrifies me because, um, you know, for one simple reason. And that is that we are moving into a brand new era, a brand new world, if we can call it that. 
uh, that's uh, confronting all the Western countries. We've known it for years and years that it was coming. It's called aging. And the aging is caused by the fertility rate dropping. The birth rate is well below negative, a break-even. And we're going to have labor shortages. And more importantly, all the studies, every last study from Finance Canada, IMF, OECD, says that when the, the aging is going to cause the economy to slow down, what that means in plain English is that revenues are going to decline that are flowing in. If your economy is only growing at 1% instead of 4 or 5 there's less tax revenues flowing into the government, federal and provincial. And yet we're increasing the indebtedness significantly at a time when, going forward, the revenues of government are going to be going down. So our expenses are right. going to be going up because of these massive increases in borrowing, and the aging is driving health care expenditures through the roof at mm-hmm. the very time that the revenues to pay for the huge increase in interest on the debt are going down. So we've yeah. got the exact opposite of what we should be doing. Well, time will tell, but until people live through it, and uh, like you did when you were a younger man, uh, they won't see it uh, or, or understand the hurt that's about to come to us if we don't deal with this. Ian, always appreciate your time on this, and uh, thanks for joining me. My pleasure, Alex. Thanks very much. That is uh, Ian Lee, who's a regular here uh, with the Sprott School of Business. So buyer beware, and uh, careful what you reap, because or sow, because you will reap what you sow. The Washington Post has uh, written about a wild, if not scary, investigation. It's uncovered about these military-grade spyware licenses by an Israeli firm sold to authoritarian governments around the world on the premise that they can use them to track terrorists and criminals. But instead, the spyware has been used to hack into 37 smartphones of anything from American journalists, human rights activists, diplomats, business executives. It was also used to hack into the devices of two women closely tied to murdered journalist Jamal Khashoggi. It's not really known why those who were targeted were targeted or exactly who was targeted, but the case certainly brings attention to an area of the technical world that seems, by appearances, like it's a wild west with very few rules on how spyware is used and policed. Ed Dubrowski is a managing partner of Cytelligence Canada, also the executive cyber advisor to the award-winning QNEX Corp. He joins us now. Good to have you, Ed. Great to be back. It's called Pegasus Spyware. So this is developed by an Israeli company, and it's, uh, I guess, a leader in this particular area. And it's licensed to governments around the world. But in this case... It's been used to infect phones that belong. Like you read the list of who who's on it. They they targeted Arab royalty, journalists, prime ministers, cabinet ministers, heads of state, and a lot of journalists who are foreign correspondents for all the major news outlets. How does this happen? So here's the thing. So let's take a little bit of a step back first of all, because because this is a very interesting story that actually um, brings to light uh, a lot of the concepts in what we consider cybersecurity today and actually many of the services being delivered in the market. Um, we have to remember that there's almost uh, two, uh, two kind of camps uh, fighting each other in a way. Uh, one camp is the bad guys, or at least how the good guys are considering this other side. And obviously, there's the good guys. Now, this this concept of good and bad changes 
depending on who you are, right? Obviously, if you are in Russia, potentially anybody in the U.S. is the bad guy and vice versa. If you're in the U.S., the the Russians are the bad guys, for example. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. the situation that happens here is that this particular company, and by the way, this company, I I believe they – that they were making about 150 million or 200 million dollars uh, worth of revenues in 2019, 2020, and so on. Uh, so this is not a company that is uh, creating something that is to to a very small market. Obviously, uh, they're they're looking to sell this particular product that provides certain capabilities, and certainly mm-hmm. like any any kind of a. Uh, uh, a weapon, uh, it could be used for defense, for good, mm-hmm. or for bad uh, agenda. And and what's happening here is that this is coming to light because certain organizations that purchase this capability have used it in such a way that we see this as potentially falling into the the realm of, well, it's not quite good. Why were you doing this? But the company right. that was making this tool uh, when it's used properly, potentially could save a lot of lives, could provide right. uh, with a lot of intelligence to intelligence agencies that need this intelligence, right? Need those capabilities. The other thing, right? Because because that, as I understand, and yeah. and sorry for interrupting, but as I understand, I mean the phone, the, the the spyware itself is developed for governments to go after the bad guys. It's just when it gets into the wrong hands, clearly this can be a very dangerous technology. And I think it's because it's such a wild west. It's not. It doesn't seem to be very regulated. Absolutely, but also remember that this spyware is just a piece of software, essentially, that allows organizations such as intelligence agencies to potentially tap into other computers. And these computers on the other side are actually just mobile devices, smartphones, mm-hmm. and, and so on. We, we, we shouldn't forget that although it looks like a phone, it's actually a, a very powerful computer. And all pieces of software have bugs in them. They, they have certain gaps and problems because humans build them and humans make mistakes and, and so on and so forth. So this company, and so they essentially found certain capabilities or bugs that they could exploit in these mobile devices, pieces of software, essentially, right? Just because they marketed that particular product doesn't mean that there is no other company out there, for good or for mm-hmm. bad, doing exactly the same thing, right? right. So, uh, so we we need to remember that these things could potentially fall into the wrong hands because it's just a piece of software. And sometimes these these software could be copied, could be recreated, or could be stolen and given to other regimes. And by the way, the the interesting piece about NSO is that in Israel, the Israeli government treats this particular Pegasus, uh, let's call it product, um, Mm -hmm. that particular product is actually treated as a weapon so it's hmm. a controlled uh, export, uh, falls under the, the controlled export regulation in Israel. So, so in other words, it's, it's not likely that this particular company, again, $150 million company, was selling this to whoever was knocking on their door. Right, More likely right, right. is that it was being sold to these, all these agencies, potentially uh, friendly, uh, and these agencies have decided to use 
those capabilities in certain ways it's that per- perhaps this particular tool uh, or, or the creators of the tools weren't really expecting it to be used that way, right? So right. who is at fault yeah. here? Is it the intelligence agencies or is it the person that created this tool who's, by the way, likely um, structured on, on, on these software faults or bugs within the software that maybe Apple creates, Google and Android and so on and so forth? And so, you know, n- not everybody is going to be a target of this, but certainly if someone wants information on, let's say, a journalist and or a high profile politician or celebrity and they get their hands on this, what is is there a protection? Like, how do you how do you not get hacked by something this advanced? Absolutely. That's a great question. And that actually goes back to zero trust, because we see these devices, we go, we buy them, they're ours uh, and, and we almost feel um, like uh, be, because we own them, uh, nobody else has access into them. We, we keep on forgetting that these are computers, and like any other computer, uh, they can be attacked by ransomware and, and, and similar types of attacks. So we need to treat these devices with, with very much scrutiny in terms of how do, how do we defend and make sure that these devices are secure. Well, there's lots of other pieces of software and capabilities that could um, essentially add additional complexity to these devices to make them even harder to break into and changes them from almost a default state to a more complex state. And in cybersecurity, we have the concept of what we call layers. It's almost like an onion, right? We like to build cybersecurity programs so that they look like layers of onions. And as the bad guys are trying to kind of get in, we make them cry, right? This is Uh, kind of a a strange analogy, I know, but uh, hopefully it resonates with everybody. So the the, the layering aspect is very important. And at the same time, we need to remember, we cannot trust the fact that when somebody calls us that there is no, no tapping happening on that particular line because there's so many other components in the mix that the, the, the service provider, the people that give you the actual line and the phone number, your SIM card could potentially be uh, replicated. Uh, there could be listening devices uh, in your apartment or wherever you are. There could be people behind your, your back as you're talking or typing a password. So um, this concept of zero trust means you always need to Uh, remember as you're using computing devices that you want to, you don't want to trust anything. You want to make sure that you're taking um, as many steps in terms of encrypting your data, in terms of making sure you know who you're sharing things with. Uh, And when you're dialing somebody, don't be a hundred percent certain that the person you're talking to on the other line is actually the person you're trying to reach. Many times we make a call, we don't even know who's on the other line because that may be the first call we're making. So is there a way to identify that person and say, okay, you're John Doe, can you prove that you're actually John Doe? Uh, uh, Is there something that you know and I know that can validate, right? And especially in intelligence circuits, uh, let's talk about spies. very important to make sure that the person you're communicating information to is actually the person that you need to be reaching because otherwise 
you know, you could be divulging information that you shouldn't be to somebody who's tra- trying to uh, cause harm or steal this oh, information yeah. and so on. So in other words, do everything opposite of what I do. Um, I say in jest. Ed, I appreciate you breaking it down. It's a fascinating story. And of course, we'll uh, chat again. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, Alex. Have a great one. Ed, you too. That is Ed uh, Dubrowski, who's the managing partner over at Cytelligence. And so, hey, careful who you talk to, because it's probably not who you think. The question, you know, are we cleaning ourselves too much at our own risk? It would seem that the data might be suggesting that we are way too clean. And, you know, for the last 16 months, all it's been is masks and then squirt alcohol all over your your hands. And what's happening is that experts are now seeing allergy rates spike sharply in kids. And, of course, for the last couple of decades, we've been seeing allergies in kids surging before the pandemic. But when you compare farm kids to city kids, farm kids get dirty. They inhale more dirt. And apparently that's keeping them safer than sanitized city kids. So what does bubbling kids long-term mean for their health in the future? Dr. Amira Ajnarain is a pediatric allergist, and this is your specialty. What are you seeing? Yeah, so you're 100% right. We've been seeing allergies skyrocket, um, especially in children as well. And so there are a few factors, and you kind of touched on a couple of them already. So one of the things about uh, bubbling the child, or also known as the hygiene hypothesis, is that Mm -hmm. what's happening is, you know, ultimately we have different arms of the immune system. And so when we're fighting bacteria as a child or something like having a cesarean section or how many antibiotics you've had or you know, you could think about it as how dirty you are, your immune system is actually activated. And so your body is fighting these different pathogens. But when that's not in the picture anymore, and you mentioned farm animals, that's a, that's a great example. You know, when you're constantly exposed to different pathogens, your body is fighting these off. But when you're not, you can kind of think about it. Another part of your immune system, which is the allergy side, is being activated. And then ultimately children are being you know, affected with all types of food allergies, environmental allergies, and um, asthma moving forward. So, so it is hmm. correct. We have been seeing that even in clinical practice. Well, I mean, back in my day, there'd be maybe one kid in hundreds that had like a severe allergy maybe to bees. And, and you know, now schools are full of kids. They have peanut allergies, bee allergies, egg allergies. There's allergies to, to fish, whatever. There's so many allergies. And so I fear moving forward, what are we going to see? Like, what is it that kids are not getting that will become, um, you know, long term a problem? Yeah, that's an amazing question, and we have been seeing this in clinical practice. I think there's a few factors that we have to think about, and I think the pandemic has actually worsened some of these. So Mm -hmm. the first thing we talked about already is, you know, being super clean and, and, um, you know, what does that lead to long term? Because we know that the gut bacteria and things that bacteria in the children does affect allergy moving forward. The other thing to think about is, you know, eczema. So one of the things we're Mm. seeing a lot, you know, you're cleaning your hands 100 times a day, clean your Mm -hmm. child's hands, which is, of course, the right thing to do during a pandemic. I definitely encourage that. But what we are also seeing is children are having more, for example, hand eczema or their eczema is getting worse. And what we know about eczema is that it can, when not controlled properly, it can lead to increasing food allergy. So, you know, you mentioned Mm. peanut, eggs, milk. These are things that we're seeing. And what's happening is, and the hypothesis is that when the barrier of the skin is broken down, what ends up happening is in the air, you're having, you know, peanut protein 
protein and this is being absorbed in the child's skin. And then when they're eating these foods for the first time, they unfortunately have an anaphylactic food allergy. And the list just gets bigger and bigger, as you mentioned, fish, eggs, dairy, etc. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it got so bad for my son with, with the sanitizer that his his hand, and he does get um, eczema. I mean, his hands were so red and chafed and cracking that I just said, don't put any more of that stuff on your hands at all. Like I just because it was doing a lot of damage to him. And then I, you know, I, I realized a couple of weeks ago, I was like, you know, he has not had a cold in 16 months. And I think a lot of parents or a lot of people would look at this and, and say, well, that's terrific. But I'm mm-hmm. actually quite concerned the next cold he does get is going to be terrible because they just haven't had the time to build up immunity to what's coming next. Yeah, so that's a great, you know, you think about it, whether you're a child or an adult. When I started my pediatric residency at Sick Kids, I literally was sick for a year straight because I was exposed to child after child. I was sick all the time. And now I feel like my immune system is rock solid. But, you know, what you're saying is accurate in that, you know, children are not getting sick. They're not being exposed to other children. They're not getting bacteria. They're not feeding this back and forth. And, you know, it will be interesting to see long term. um, I mean, this is we're still in this pandemic, right? So what does that look like moving forward? We're already seeing even pre-pandemic the the rates of um, food allergies, asthma, seasonal allergies um, go up. And so it is interesting to see how is that going to pan out long term. Another factor I think that's important to note is that, you know, we've learned through early introduction of these food allergens are important. So you were saying in your time, you know, no one had a peanut allergy. What we're seeing now is parents are nervous to give their children Mm. peanut butter, eggs, dairy for the first time because it's a pandemic, because what if their child has a reaction? They have to go to the hospital during a pandemic. And that's actually feeding into the problem because by not introducing your child to these allergens as early as four to six months, you can actually lead, we've shown that 85% of children, uh, food allergies, we could actually prevent by introducing early. So it's actually, we're, yeah. we're seeing the opposite, right? People are so scared to go to the hospital or the child is going to react. So then they're not getting exposed. So that's another factor and, to think about. Yeah. And I'm sure we'll find out more data in, in the months to come on this. I mean, there's a lot of debate over, you know, should the kids go back to school with masks or not? Um, you know, I try to keep my son out of masks as much as possible because I don't want him to be so sanitized. But, you know, what do you recommend moving forward to parents, especially those who have ba- babies and children born into this thing who have probably been wrapped in bubble wrap? Yeah, so that's so that's a great question. I think, you know, it's all about risk and benefit and, and your own family and what your own levels of comfort is. I think one factor to think about is these the vaccines are um, getting approved for younger and younger age groups. So that will be something that allows children to be vaccinated. And then this whole the mask debate might be something that we don't have to talk about, because, as you know, of course, you put a mask mm-hmm. on your and it, it, it's important to prevent the spread of COVID. However, you're also not allowing other types of germs and things to happen between children, right? So it's, it's, it's preventing most of the germs from being transferred. Now, in terms of babies, you know, I think that by the time vaccines are allowed for children, it's going to be, you know, a lot for that young age group will be a while from now. And, I, you know, I tell my friends, there's no evidence about this, but I say to them, look, like, you know, it's all about risk and benefit. When your child is outside in the backyard, you know, I... I would just let my child play in the dirt, get dirty. You know, they've been showing that early exposure to different animals, like go to a farm, there's different zoos, like just expose your child, you know, every time they're in an area that you're, you think is safe, whether it's your backyard or even, you know, in your house, it doesn't have to be a constant, like wipe their hands. And, and, you know, they've even showed that kids 
for example, pacifiers, um, you know, if your pacifier falls on the ground, they've shown that children that parents will just take the pacifier and suck on it and put in their kid have lower rates of allergy than children whose pacifiers are like washed in water and sanitized with soap. So that's just something simple like that, you know, exposing them when you can in a way that doesn't, you know, spread COVID, of course. It always seems to be the second and third child uh, who, you know, it's like a uh, 20 second rule. Don't worry about it. Is there any correlation? Do you find that the firstborn tends to be the more allergenic or is that just a myth? Well, actually, so there is evidence to show that having more children in the house itself um, it, so it actually reduces um, risk of allergy. Right. So you can think about it. It's probably a combination of parents being more relaxed with their second, third, yeah. fourth child. <laughs> but it's also by exposure, right? So you could think about, yeah. you know, child one has no siblings. Child four has three older siblings who go to school, who come home with different germs and expose this child, baby to them, right? So it's, it's actually a combination. So there is evidence to show that having multiple children within a household can reduce um, allergy risk versus having just the one child. Um, and I think it's more just from a germ exposure and your, your last child has three other older siblings that are bringing home all kinds of things versus your first one is you have paranoid parents plus no mm-hmm. other children, right? So it's a combination for sure. Well, I appreciate you sharing your time with me and uh, giving parents a heads up because uh, I think this is a headline worth watching. But uh, hopefully Thank we'll you. get you on back again when we've got more data. Thank you so much, Doctor. I know My you're very pleasure. Busy. Have a lovely day. Thank you. Thank you. That is Dr. Amira Ajnarin, and uh, she's a pediatric allergist. And so there you go. Consider yourself warmed. Uh, the, the, these precautionary bubble measures, they do come with a cost, and we're seeing it. Thanks for listening. Of course, you can listen live Monday through Friday starting 6.30 sharp here. I'm Alex Pearson on Point. This is Global News Radio.